Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. That Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And if you believe in that, you will have eternal life. That's why we call it the Believe and Live series. The identity of Jesus, what we know Jesus to be, has everything to do with who we are or what we think uh, we are in this world. So we've been doing it. I cannot quite remember what number this is. I think the echo on this is, I don't know if we're tampering with this. Uh, I can't quite remember. Probably, I think, 12, 13. This is 12th or 13th um, message on this. And we're now in chapter 14. Last time we did chapter 14, 1 to 7. Now we're in 14, 15 to 26. Let me start by reading, uh, say, reading this. By very surface reading of things, Dr. Allwell Oji was, a successful, was successful and living the life. He was a young practicing doctor with bucket loads of potential for living the Lagosian dream of excelling in a respectable vocation and having a stellar career. The hint is in the name, All Well. Except, All Was Not Well. On Sunday, 19th of March, 2017, last week Sunday, he took a ride with his driver, and when they got to a place on 3rd Mainland Bridge, he told the unsuspecting driver to pull over after which he went to the edge of the bridge, looked down on the lagoon, and took a plunge to his death. He was just 35. And this wasn't his first suicidal attempt. We have a problem in our city. We have a problem in our country. We have a problem in our society. And it's called mental illness. In fact, people who are mentally ill is almost a taboo in the society. Let me tell you another one. There was a guy called Ario Olariwaju Taiwo. On his Twitter feed, he put this statement. Only got a few hours to live. Feeling depressed, but not scared of death. Wish I can make things right again, but no, it is over. To which someone responded with this. You want to commit suicide? That is, do you want to commit suicide? Guy, take rope. Come and take a rope. Brother, please don't die a wasteful death. Willingly make yourself available for money ritual. God won't be angry at us. God bless you as you make yourself a living sacrifice. A few moments later, he took his life. We're all used to that um, almost a comic scene. Of the guy, I remember it was a particular film, I think it was the Sophia, I can't remember it. A guy wants to, he's saying he's going to take his life. Things aren't working for him. He stands on the balcony, and then somebody says, you want to take your life? And he says, all right, jump, jump. I was listening to a pastor recently. He said there was a guy not far away from where they lived. He was around the family and probably didn't like what was going on in his life. That's what they said. Probably was depressed. And the guy went up and said he was going to take his life, and the people, his family were pleading with him, pleading with him, pleading with him. And the pastor then eventually came and said, you want to jump? Fine. 
He said, if you don't jump, you're a bastard. And he said, what? He said, I'll jump. He said, if you don't jump, you're a bastard. And then the guy eventually came down. Now, this is the kind of way we normally would react to people with mental illness. We see, because we cannot see it physically, we almost think it isn't real. When somebody is saying or threatening to do something based on the agony that they are going, or that's going on within their minds, we tend to mock them based on our understanding of the lack of reality that is going on in their lives. Now, can I say mental illness is a real thing? Depression is real. Now, I've not known it, but some people very close in my family have experienced this. Two weeks ago, I spent the, latter, uh, the better part of the week speaking with a psychiatrist and also discussing two particular cases of it. I mean, depression. Now, closely associated with depression is loneliness. In The Guardian, Andrew Solomon writes that depression is a disease of loneliness. Now, they're not the same thing, but they usually sometimes are correlated together. Depression would arise out of loneliness, and sometimes it feeds itself in a vicious cycle. Now, what's loneliness? Loneliness, and I'll talk a little bit more about it, but we can just see it as the absence of intimacy. It can be severe, it can be painful. I dare say that some of us here probably are going through various degrees of loneliness. Now, if you are such person here today, I want to tell you there is hope. I don't say that in a trite way, but even looking at the passage that has been read to us here, I think and I believe that what Jesus tells us is one of the ways, and I would say a very effective way, of dealing with loneliness. You see, Jesus' disciples, or Jesus has been with them for quite a number of years now. And in chapter 13, verse 1, it says that Jesus knew that I had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. In verse 33, he told the disciples, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you where I'm going, you cannot come. So his disciples are faced with the issue of impending loneliness. Last week, he gave them, or what we treated last week, was how he brought them to see the eternal perspective of his going away. But Jesus, the great counselor that he is, did not only deal with the eternal perspective, but he wanted to deal with their immediate concern. And in this passage, he offers them comfort. In their loneliness, he offers them comfort. And if you are like that today... I would say that the Lord will want to offer you that same comfort. So, the sermon title today is Comfort for the Lonely. And we'll look at it under these three headings. Comfort for the Lonely under these three headings. The predicament of the lonely. The promise to the lonely. And the proxy for the lonely. Predicament of the lonely. Promise to the lonely. And proxy for the lonely. So, let's start with the first point. The predicament of the lonely. Now, Emily White, who is an author, wrote a book, Loneliness, a Memoir. And in this, she describes loneliness to be something like this. The absence of intimate relationships, those kind that make you realize that your life will be much better were they present. The absence of 
intimate relationships, the kind of which, if, you were pre- if they were present in your life, will make your life worth living. Now, here in Lagos, in the last 30 years, we've witnessed a kind of urbanization. If you're about 30 years or, no, uh, or, old, uh, 30 years or older, you understand what I want to tell you now. Like, when I was growing up, I remember down the street, down the block, at least maybe 10 houses both ways, we all knew ourselves. I mean, I knew the names of all the people that were living there. Occasionally, we'd go to their houses. Um, if you had something that you didn't have in your house, you could just quickly go to the neighbor's house and actually borrow. If you wanted to go out as a parent, you could just take your, neighbor's ch- your, your children and give to your neighbors, or vice versa. Except, of course, you suspected that neighbors were witches, but we'll leave that on the earth. I remember someone here telling us about when she moved from where she was based uh, about six years ago to Lagos. You know, she, like what we have now, there was no power and her battery had run down, so she needed a, a phone charger. And so what did she do? She was staying with her three friends or, or, or family and they went around. So what did she do? Well, like where she was based, she just hopped up to the neighbor's place, she never met them before, and just went and asked for a charger. How do you think they, they looked? And she told the people that she was living with later that she went for a charger, and they all looked at her with incredulity. Now, she spent six years in Lagos. I can bet you she doesn't do that now. I knew all my neighbors down the streets. Today, we've been living in our house for nine months. I don't know the name of my neighbor's wife, my immediate neighbor. In some sense, urbanization comes with individualism, and individualism leads to loneliness. When I was living in Manchester, there was a man who died in his house, and he was there for a year and a half, and nobody knew he had died. But you see, loneliness can strike a person who lives alone, or someone who lives in a house full of people. Some of us here grew up in polygamous homes, where, with large families. And you're always trying to find your identity because you didn't feel that you fitted with the general way that the family actually lived. And you felt alone, even though there were many people in your house. Or some of us could be here, and we're going through personal struggles on taboo subjects in our society. Maybe you're, you're struggling with your sexuality, and you don't feel like you can tell anyone. Or maybe your marriage is crashing, and again, you don't feel like you can tell anyone. Perhaps you're a single parent, and you, don't, you feel like nobody, all the other people around you don't know how you feel. At those points, loneliness becomes something that is quite acute. Perhaps you are going through suicidal thoughts. And because of the taboo and the shame, you feel like you cannot tell anyone. And what's worse is that some of us may seem rambunctious on the outside, and we use our extroverted behavior as a cover-up for what is really going on within us, because we don't want people to know. And so we keep to ourselves. But the more we keep to ourselves, deep down inside, we feel a longing to speak to someone because we fear being left alone. You know, loneliness really haunts us, doesn't it? Now, Jesus is very aware of this. And in verse 18, he uses one word that is quite key to describe what he, he knows the, uh, his disciples will be thinking when he is departing. Look at in verse 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as 
orphans. Now, being an orphan, I don't know if some of us here were orphans quite early on, but being an orphan, or maybe you've lost one of your parents quite early on in your life, is to be deprived of the most intimate and fundamental and vital relationship in your life. It's a desperately sad situation. Every child, I think of my own child now, when he sees his mom, obviously we know my Timila is one year old, when he sees his mom, he's only thinking of one thing, milk. When he finishes the milk, he sees me, he's only thinking of one thing, rough play, right? He wants to be thrown up and down. But often, not only is deprived of those things, but when he's three or four years old, he doesn't have a father to help him tie his shoelaces and teach him how to do it. When the girl is growing up and probably she's around 11 or 12 and she starts her period, she doesn't have a mother to actually sit her down and take her through. The most fundamental and vital relationships in our lives at that early stage is taken away from us. And this, Jesus Christ described, that Jesus Christ described, will be what his disciples are actually thinking with his departure. You know, orphans, as I was reading just recently, sometimes it's, people don't really get it. They say things like, okay, you've lost your parents, so the way to think about it, or not to think about it, is get busy. Or some can even say something as cruel as, you should have gratitude for the times that you had with them. As though these things are substitute for the loss. These people have lost the kind of intimacy that for them cannot be replaced. And this is what the disciples are facing. With Jesus, they are losing the most remarkable person they've ever encountered. The feeling for them is like when they think of the security blanket that he provides, gone. When they think of someone who truly understands them, gone. The one who provided true effective counsel, gone. The one who provided warm care and corrective rebuke, gone. The one who, before whom they could bank their future hopes and dreams, gone. Gone, 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 gone. And now they feel very alone. And it's this loneliness itself that then sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes grows into depression. And the funny thing about depression and loneliness is if loneliness leads to depression, the depression itself further alienates you from most people because one of the problems is that they don't want to be your friend because friendship requires a lot. And if you're friends with someone that is depressed, that takes a lot from you. And then the person feels that, and therefore the person wants to protect themselves and so they further stay away. So the loneliness leads to depression, but the, the depression leads to further loneliness, and then you are caught in a vicious cycle. When you are there, it's hard for you to hear even words of comfort. Again, if you are someone like that here today, I hear you. But more importantly, Jesus hears you. You see, for the disciples, tried Christian answers like, it is well, will not work. Because it's not well. Or, you're single and you're, 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 you're depressed. Maybe you should get married. Only for them to get married and be further disappointed by the spouse that they put this hope upon? No. For the disciples, tried answers will not work. Well wishes wouldn't work either. They need to hear more. They need to hear a promise. And a promise from someone who can actually deliver and guarantee it. 
They need a promise. And that leads me to my second point. The promise to the lonely. The promise to the lonely. Now remember, we're thinking that loneliness is the absence of intimate relationships. If that is the case, the disciples were right to be despondent about Jesus' leaving. Now, it's not that they didn't think they could have a substitute. For many of us, yes, you've lost a particular friend. Maybe the friend died or maybe the friend moved away. What do you do? You fill it up with somebody else. But the problem is that this is a hugely, just an astonishingly remarkable human being. So whichever substitute they fill it with, that person is not going to measure up, right? Well, yes and no. Jesus' answer is, to, is the promise to send them another, as we see in verse 16, I would ask my father and he will give you another advocate. Now the word there, advocate, probably doesn't convey the meaning of the Greek word. The Greek word is parakletos. And it's one of these words where, you know, when you're translating, at least to English, there's no immediate parallel that can capture the range, the lexical range of the word. So it's advocate. In some other translations you see it as comforter. Counselor, helper, it's all of these words. So perhaps we can call it, he will send them another paraclete. Jesus was all of these things to them. He was comforter, counselor, helper, advocate. Where were they going to get another one? But notice what he says in verse 16. Not just I will send you an advocate, I will send you another advocate. Now when you see that, you probably think, well, I'm gone, somebody else comes. It's a little bit different. There are two Greek words for that word, another. So if you look at the King James Version of uh, Galatians 1 verse 6, where it says, I marvel that ye are soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. The Greek word there is hetero, from where we get heter- heterodoxy, which basically means a different one. The another is different. That's not the word that is used here. The another that is used here is alos. And alos means another of the same kind. Another of the same kind. In 1 John 2, 1, Jesus is called the paraclete. And so Jesus is saying, another paraclete, just like me. And this paraclete we see, verse 17a, he is the spirit of truth. Or in verse 25, he is the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And I want to say four things about the promise to send the Holy Spirit. The first thing is this. When Jesus says, I am departing, he's saying, and quite obviously, that he's going to replace his absence with presence. He's going to replace his absence with presence. So he's not going to leave them void. I will not leave you, I will not leave you as orphans. He's not going to leave them void, but he's going to send them another presence. And a lot of us do need that. Someone has gone, you can't actually bring that person back. You need to fill the void with presence. But he's saying more than just presence. Number two, this person that is coming to replace me is a replacement like no other because he himself is God. Notice in verse 18, Jesus said before that, he said he will send the Holy Spirit. But in verse 18, he says, I will come to you. When he says, I won't leave you as often, but he says, I will come to you. In verse 21, he says, I will show myself. And then in verse 23, he says, 
we, that is myself and the Father, will come to them. In other words, when you say the disciples are thinking there is no one that can replace Jesus because for you to replace Jesus, who is God, you need to be God yourself. And Jesus is saying, exactly. The Holy Spirit, and this is bound up in this Christian doctrine that we call the Trinity, that God is three persons but one being. The Holy Spirit is very much God in the same way the Son and the Father is God. To have the Spirit, as we saw it, well, in verse 9, Thomas, uh, Philip asked the question, show us the Father, and Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In the same way to see Jesus is to see the Father, to have the Holy Spirit is to have the Father and Son. In other words, Jesus is not telling them about the Holy Spirit, the force remain or the force be with you. The Holy Spirit is more than a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. Jesus is saying, for those who are lonely, I am not just sending you a warm, fuzzy feeling. I am sending you real presence, a person that you can fellowship with. The third thing is this. Verse 17. It's not just that he will be with you. Look at verse 17. The world cannot accept him because he neither sees him or knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and he will be in you. So it's not just that he will be with you, but that he will be in you. How have they known him before? Well, Jesus is the one. In John 3, 34, he says that he was the one with this, uh, who had the spirit without any limits. So as they've seen Jesus, as he's demonstrating the kingdom of God, and he can only do that by the spirit, as they've seen Jesus, they've seen the spirit. The spirit has been with them as he's been with Jesus. Now he's saying, actually, he was just with you but now there's going to be a more intimate relationship. He's going to be in you. Now, why is that important? If you've ever had any kind of suffering, part of the reasons why sometimes answers like it is well are very cruel and crushing is because the person that is uttering it really has no idea what it is to go through what you're going through. And sometimes what we need is not to say, well, I've lost my father. Before you can talk to me, I'd like for you to lose your own father as well. No, what we want is the word empathy. Empathy. For someone to try to enter into your situation without necessarily experiencing it. Because that affects what they say. And empathy is only a function of closeness. I can really, when you read an obituary in the newspaper, for instance, you see it. It says survived by father, uh, by wife, children, grandchildren, something like that. When you see that, well, you say Okay, you know, that's, that's sad. Someone has lost someone. Why? Because you don't feel the person's pain. Why? Because you're not that close to the person. Or when I heard, like recently this week, that um, a mutual friend of some of us, his wife has been, um, she's been diagnosed with terminal cancer. She's probably got a few months to live. That hurt me because I'm close to the person. And so if I utter words, they wouldn't be tried. I will be very careful to say and utter words that I hope will touch the person, to show the person that I in some ways feel what you're feeling. Now you cannot be closer to anyone. How closer can you be to someone than being in the person? You're here today, that's what the Bible is saying. 
that if you have the Holy Spirit, when you think nobody else really understands what you're going through, he is in you, he fills you. That's why in Romans 8, it can say of the Holy Spirit, even though Jesus intercedes for us before the Father in heaven, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us here in earth because he's in our hearts. That's why he can utter groans that cannot, uh, he can speak groans to the Father that cannot be uttered. When you don't feel like you know how to pray, you don't know how to articulate the words to present it to God, the Holy Spirit, because he's in us, is able to intercede for us in ways that God can fully understand and captures how we feel. Perhaps I've said this as well. In relating this, you know, in Ephesians 2.22, it says that we, well, let me just read it, and in you, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't just reside in us as individual believers, but it says as the church, as a church community, how we are a temple, the dwelling of God, is that the Holy Spirit lives in us together. And so part of the ways that the Spirit mediates the comfort of Christ to us, he does it in our hearts, yes. He does it through the words of God, yes. But as well, he does it through one another. This is why to be a Christian is not just to be an individual. It is to be rooted in a community of people. Because the Holy Spirit shows us that we are not alone. By sending us brothers and sisters who also have the Holy Spirit. And we supply one another. We are in one body, but that body we've been baptized to by one self-same spirit. And so when Emmanuel is going through something, I cannot, he says, mourn with those that mourn. Rejoice with those that rejoice. We are being fitted together, not perfectly, but in unity, so that we can bear one another's burdens. And when we do this rightly, when we are able to speak to one another concerning the issues in our marriages, concerning the issues in our heads, the voices in our heads, it is the way the Holy Spirit also ministers to us. So if you're here, I really want you to know, and you have the Spirit. The Spirit, by being in you, when you think nobody understands, He knows you. He knows you. The fourth point, which is probably the best of all, is that this promise is forever. Look at the end of verse 16. I'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Not a while, not for a moment, not a year, but forever. Now, I don't think I get a better package than this. In fact, the psychiatrist, and I love the psychiatrist, but no, a, a psychologist in the University of Chicago's Department of Psychology, Louise Hockley, says this concerning um, loneliness. She says, there are only a few strategies that are proven to successfully pro uh, protect against loneliness. And exploring your faith is one of them. People who have a personal relationship with their God or a higher power tend to do well, now, in many ways, she was speaking about people who have a faith. She wasn't saying the Christian faith. But she says, listen, for a, a psychologist, a highly scholarly psychologist, having taken the data, 
I said that, look, religion for a lot of people is one of the best ways through which you can deal with the issue of loneliness. She further goes on to say, both internally, but also just the fact that you are part of the community itself, whether or not you're able to speak in so much, helps to buffer that. Now, what Christianity says is yes, but we're not talking about offering therapy out of an illusion. We're talking about offering comfort out of what is truth, because he is the spirit of truth. And Jesus said, don't only just believe me, believe it because that's what the Father says. Verse 24, these words you hear are not my own, they belong to the Father who sent me. All I can say is this. If you feel desperately lonely, sometimes we don't actually experience the comfort of the Spirit because we don't actually believe that He has given to us to do this. The promise of Him helping, the promise of Him teaching, the promise of Him comforting, the promise of Him counseling. Why turn to some other place when it's right there before you? He's in your heart. He wants to speak to you through the Word of God, and He wants to speak to you through the people of God. Now, but you would say to me, but it seems like this promise is not for everyone. It's not for everyone. And you'll be correct. 17b tells us that. And that takes me to the third point, proxy for the lonely. This promise is not for everyone. In fact, if we read the passage, we see that there are two groups of people that are spoken of here. The one group, the Holy Spirit and Jesus will show themselves to. And another group, it says that he will not show himself to them. The first group, the one that he will not show himself to, is the world. He describes them as the ones who will not obey Jesus' teaching. Verse 24a, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. The second group are the disciples of Jesus. That is, those who keep his commands, verse 21, and obey his teaching, verse 23. And so someone now is saying, maybe you don't, you're not a Christian, and you're saying, ah, so I see. This is either very simple or ghastly, or, this, or both of them. What you're saying is, the instant way to be free of loneliness is to become a Christian. I, I do that by simply following teachings and obeying rules. Right? Wrong. What separates or fundamentally separates these two people, these two groups of people, is love. Love for Jesus. Notice in 15, 21, and 23. 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one that loves me. 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. It is love for Jesus. It's not that you keep the commandments to love. It is that you keep the commandments because you love. So your response would be, and why should I love Jesus? Especially, have you seen my life? My life is really a mess. Why should I love your Jesus? The promise isn't for me. Besides, if you're telling me to love Jesus so that I can actually experience healing from loneliness, that is a bit like coercion. It's a bit like bribery or like a con. If I say I love Jesus, it won't be genuine because I'm only loving him for what I can get. It makes sense, right? 
oh, what do I, I can get freedom from loneliness, fine. What do I need? Love Jesus. But the moment I transact in that way, it's not genuine. And you will be correct. But you'll be wrong to interpret it this way. You see, those who love Jesus, when we call Christians those who love Jesus, it's not the way they earn or become Christians. Their love for Jesus is in response to Jesus' love or God's love for them. 1 John 4.10 says it this way. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Or not that we love God, but that he first loved us. So, well, okay, I get that, but in fact, the only thing you're offering me is, at best, empathy. The Holy Spirit hasn't experienced what I have experienced. Besides, he's not giving me any solution. Comfort is just saying, don't worry, don't worry. I need to know that something has been done about my loneliness and whatever my loneliness may be pointing to. And I want to say, if you're talking like that, just stick with me. Because this is exactly what Jesus provides. You see, the loneliness that we experience in this world, and please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, just listen carefully. But the loneliness that we experience, just like all kinds of suffering, in one way points to the eternal loneliness that those who do not have God will have. It's a precursor for the eternal loneliness that we would experience without God. Why? You see, we spoke about fundamental relationships and vital relationships. As human beings, the most fundamental and vital relationship we should have is with our Creator. But that relationship has been broken because we want to be or live like our own gods. This is what the Bible calls sin. And with that broken relationship, all manner of suffering comes into work. I'm not saying your particular um, loneliness now is based on a particular sin, but I'm saying that all, ultimately, suffering and therefore loneliness is based on our broken relationship with God. And that points to utter misery in the life to come if we don't make it right with God. Now, I agree with you. Empathy is very important, but it's not enough because empathy is based on closeness. What you're asking for is sympathy because sympathy is based on experience. If I go to comfort someone who has lost their dad, there's a way I can speak about it, even if I'm very close to that person and empathize. But when the person knows that I have lost my own dad, probably around the same age, the person actually listens more. Am I correct? Sometimes we listen to people more because they've gone through the same experience that we've gone through. So if we say the Holy Spirit hasn't done this, but hold on. Remember that the whole context of this passage is that Jesus is leaving his disciples. And he's going to the Father. But the journey for him to go to the Father is through the cross. Now what happened is Jesus, out of love and serving as our proxy, that is our substitute, suffered eternal loneliness on the cross. On the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus say that he was forsaken? Why was Jesus forsaken? Jesus was forsaken in our place so that he could say to us in his resurrection, 
I will not leave you or forsake you. Jesus suffered eternal loneliness on the cross so that we will not be lonely ever again. You see, if you see the Holy Spirit as the empathizer-in-chief that comes to live in our hearts, the sending of the Holy Spirit is based on the loving and atoning work of the sympathizer-in-chief. And Jesus is not just a sympathizer. What Jesus did on the cross after he rose again is the basis upon which he can utter these words as he says to us in verse 19. Because I live, you also will live. So I'm not offering you an immediate solution to the problems that you face, but what I'm offering you, or what Jesus is offering you, is true vital relationship. Relationship with the Holy Spirit and relationship with God through the Holy Spirit based on the work of Jesus who's actually suffered in your place and knows exactly how you feel. He not only offers you sympathy, empathy, but he also offers you eternal companionship. He will be with you forever. So why not, if you're not someone who believes in Jesus, cast your cares on him. Why not trust him? And if you have the spirit, why not? That's why the voices in your head, why not take that leap to trust someone? Trust someone in church. Just speak to someone. You think we wouldn't understand, but why don't you try? Because Jesus has given you that freedom. Even if you think you'll be rejected, Jesus will never reject you. And if some of us here aren't going through those same things, could we be the ears of Jesus? Could we be patient enough with our brothers and sisters who probably are going through this? Could we be not judgmental when they come and speak to us? If we do so, we will be reverberating with the heart of the Father, with the example of the Son, and in the power of the Spirit. We have a very aching world, a very aching city, not just believers going through this, but unbelievers. And the Lord is calling us to be such of those people. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. It's heavy because what people are going through is heavy. And though we do not all understand, we know that you understand. Jesus, we know that you understand. In this regard, I pray for anyone under the sound of my voice. Those who do not trust in you yet, we ask that you draw them to you, Lord Jesus. We ask that by your spirit you draw them to you. And for those who are going through such pain and feel they cannot speak to anyone, Spirit of God, we ask that you soothe them. Speak to them in their hearts. Speak to them through the word. And enable us as a church community to, be, to show gospel love, to show gospel presence. To give our time, to give calls, to give texts, so that none of us will feel like 
Ari or Lariwajo, none of us will feel like we have no hope, like all oh, well, God, Oji. Help us to be our brother's keepers in the power of the Spirit. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.